Heavenly Father, we just bring everything we're bearing to you today and lay it before you at your throne. Be with Pastor Alex as he speaks. Open our hearts to receive from you in your name we pray, amen. Have you ever wondered about why sometimes churches hand you a little piece of bread and some juice in a cup? And you're like, what is this? Why do we do this? Like, did the church take out stock in small plastic cup companies? You know, like, what is going on? Why do we do this thing? The churches I grew up in, we would periodically about once a quarter do communion, but sometimes they would forget. And they'd be like, oh, we haven't done communion for a while. And we do this thing where the deacon stood up front and then passed around these silver trays with these little tiny juice cups and these little tiny, it looks like an oyster cracker. And I'm like, what is this? This isn't satisfying. I want more food than this. What are they doing? And they usually built, uh, they usually preached a message that built a bunch of guilt around the practice. And they were like, should you be eating this right now? Do you have sin in your life? And I'd be like, it's not that good anyways. Do I even want to be eating it? You know, like, what is going on? And some of our Christian brothers and sisters do this practice every single week in their churches because they see it as a means by which they receive grace for the previous week and have their sins forgiven. Some use real wine. Others use off-brand grape juice. And the true followers of Jesus only use 100% Welch's grape juice. Right? That's what we've got back there. The true followers of Jesus. Um, quick fun story. The first time I ever tasted wine, I was in a church and, uh, they called everybody down to do communion and I was like, oh, okay, you know? And so I went down there and dipped my bread in this juice and I told Darby, I leaned over to her, I was like, their juice went bad. It was so bad. My mouth is all puckered up. It's a terrible, they, they use expired juice. And she said, they use real wine, Alex. That's what wine tastes like. And so, uh, yeah, different people do different things. Um, some, in some churches, they actually put the wafer on your tongue for you, right? In some churches, you have a piece of bread and you dip it like we do. Sometimes, um, you have just a little wafer and a little cup that you use. But there's lots of different ways that it's being done. And, uh, not everybody even calls it the same thing. Even every Christian church seems to call it something different. Communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist are just a few of the names. But despite all the differences... This is one of the things that every gathering of Christian in the world, in some way or in some form, does. We all do this thing. And many things divide Christians from each other, but this practice actually unites us. So today, you're like, why aren't we in Matthew? Like, I thought it was going to take so, all summer. What are, what are we doing talking about communion? Today, we're doing a mini-series where we're going to work through occasionally throughout the Sermon on the Mount. I'm calling it Back to the Basics. And we're going to hit three key ordinances or sacraments. Essentially, we're going to talk about what we do in the church and why we do it. Because sometimes I sit out here and I'm like, why do we do this? I don't know. That's just how my personality works. I'm like, why do we sing songs? What's the point of that? Why do we do communion? Not that you're not valuable and important. Thank you, guys. But you know what I'm saying? I'm like, why do we do things the way we do in church? What's the thinking behind that? What's the purpose? What's the heritage? And so we're going to talk about those things periodically throughout the series on the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to pop up and say, hey, it's a Back to the Basics mini-series, and we're going to talk about baptism. We're going to talk about worship, and we're going to talk about why we do these things that we do. But today we are talking about communion. 
So let's talk a little bit about the different names for this practice. One of them is the Lord's Supper. Now this is a reminder, reminder that what Jesus intended was a meal, not just a little morsel of food and not just a ritual. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Some people call it communion. That references that because of the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, we can commune with God. We can have relationship with God. We can talk to God. We can come to the table and be reunited with God because of Jesus. Eucharist is another name for this practice. It literally means thanksgiving. This is the time of not coming and be like, I'm such a wretched sinner, I shouldn't take this. No, this is the time to come and say, even though I am a sinner, Christ loved me enough to die for me. He loves me despite who I am, and because of his love, I can become like him. That's something to be thankful about. It's the time of saying, look at all that God has done for me. And then some people call it sacrament. Um, communion is considered the first sacrament, a sacred symbol or ritual. That's a sacrament. Sometimes it's simply called the sacrament, though, because um, it is the first of many sacraments practiced by the Catholic Church. Although it is merely one of the sacraments, sometimes if they say, hey, the sacrament, they're referring to communion. So you say, okay, Alex, so why do we do this? When well, Luke 22, um, verse 14, it says, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread and gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So there, that's why we do it, right? That's why we take tiny little plastic cups, um, and we take a sip of juice and tiny little wafers of bread periodically. But is that really what he was trying to get us to do? Uh, I'm going to argue that I think he wanted more from us. Um, let's look at a couple passages from Jesus' ministry here. And talk about why I think he was trying to get us to do more than to occasionally eat a cracker and drink a sip of juice to remember him. Mark 2, 15. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, of them and they were following him. Luke 7, 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Um, drunkard and gluttonous man, someone who likes to drink wine and eat a lot, those are not the first terms that come to mind when I think of Jesus. But that's what the religious leaders, looking at him from the outside, thought of him. Luke 14, verse 12, And Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, they, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, we get practices of Jesus, right? He hangs out at people's houses, he has dinners, tax collectors and sinners show up, he's known for eating and drinking wine and hanging out with the wrong kind of people. What does he tell people to do? He says, hey, you should throw parties and invite people who don't get to come to parties. 
So many scholars believe that what Jesus was saying when he told his disciples to do this in remembrance of me, he wasn't just saying, hey, you should find some really thin crackers, break them up, and take a tiny squirt of juice and give it to people, and this will remind you of me. Um, he was telling them to do what the disciples had seen him do all throughout his ministry. What was that? Throw parties and eat with people. They knew what he did. He traveled around and he had dinner parties with the wrong kind of people while announcing that anyone and everyone could have a place in the kingdom of God. He was telling them to continue to hold countercultural dinner parties to remember him, just like he did. Every time a Christian holds an inclusive dinner party and shares food and wine, we are testifying about our king and his kingdom. We are testifying about his life and death, his resurrection and ascension. Forget 1999. We need to be partying like death has been defeated, and we're acting like our king is coming to right every wrong. Let me just ask you something. How do you think culture would feel about the church if we were known for throwing great parties where anyone was invited to come and enjoy for free? I think it would be a different perspective than what they have with the church right now, right? The culture out here does not like, man, the church, they can throw a great party. What do they usually think? Boring, judgmental, stuffy, out of date. The early church kept throwing these welcoming, inclusive, everyone's welcome to come and eat free parties. And the early church called them agape feasts or love feasts. The love feast sounds like a terrible name for a singles bar or something, but... It's actually the Greek word used in Jude 1.12. It says love feasts. Um, Paul clearly references a communal meal when he talks about the ways the Corinthians were abusing the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11, 17-34. We're going to read that passage in just a few minutes here. But Paul's like, you keep stealing all the plastic cups so other people can't get juice. No, that's not what he says. He's like, you keep eating the meal so when people come in late, there's no food left over for them. He says, it's all about sharing the abundance of Jesus, and yet you're keeping it for yourself. He's talking about a meal. St. Ignatius of Antioch, an early church father, in his writing, he refers to communion as the agape feast. In a letter from Pliny the Younger to Trajan, in 111 AD, he delivers a report about the rise of Christianity in the empire, and writes that the Christians uh, meet on a stated day in the early morning. They address a form of prayer to Jesus as some kind of divinity. And later in the day, they would reassemble to eat a common, harmless meal. Similar communal meals are recorded in the apost uh, uh, apostolic tradition, often attributed to Hippolytus of Rome, who does not use the term agape, but refers to the Lord's Supper as a feast. And in the works of a Tertullian, who says it is a love feast when we gather to celebrate communion at horizon we have weekly community dinners and we don't just do that because we're like that's cool that's trendy we get to hang out together we get to hang some lights in our backyard we do it because we believe jesus held those exact same meals and two thousand years later we're tapping into the very dna that jesus himself implemented in his ministry the early church held them and I believe, and many scholars believe, this is what Jesus intended for us to do in order to remember him. Now, when Jesus said, remember him, he wasn't like, man, people are going to forget me. He's talking about to memorialize him. What do we do on July 4th? 
We shoot off fireworks, we eat barbecues, we celebrate our freedom to memorialize the fact that we are an independent nation, no longer under the rule of Great Britain, right? Um, it's a day to remember, not because we forget, but because it's a way that we celebrate the remembrance. Um, when Jesus is saying, remember him, it's about remembering what he was all about. It's about doing an act that someone did in order to honor their memory. It would be like if I, you guys all know I love Star Wars, I'm obsessed with Star Wars. It'd be like if I tragically passed away and you guys said, we're all going to get together and watch Empire Strikes Back to remember Alex, right? It's not because you forgot me. It's something I would do, something that I would want done. That's exactly what Jesus is saying, to memorialize him, to carry on his work and mission. By the way, if I die, just watch The Last Jedi, because then you'll cry about the movie and about me. So, um, We've reduced the life-changing practice of Jesus into a symbolic gesture. We've taken this life-changing practice that he wants us to live out in our lives. If you go back and read about the early church, it was the very practice that drew people into Christianity and we've reduced it down into a 30-second symbolic spiritual gesture in our churches. We've traded the power of the gospel at work for a shadow of what it could be. We've traded the real for the ritual. The Lord's Supper isn't intended to be a tedious ritual that we repeat every month. I mean, I'm going to be honest. When it's the first month, I'm like, man, i got to go buy juice and bread. i got to make sure we got this stuff. i got to talk to Marissa about the order of the service, make sure that... I'm standing up at the right time. I've got to figure out what I'm going to say when we say this literally every month. So I hate repeating the same thing. How can I say something different? You know, like, how can I take a new take on something we've been doing for 2,000 years? And um, I can get frustrated at how tedious the ritual seems. But it's not supposed to be just a tedious ritual. It's supposed to be a life giving practice that we practice every single week when our table becomes the battleground to reach people far away from Jesus. So how did this happen? How did this countercultural practice of Jesus throwing parties and inclusive meals to invite people in to experience him and his kingdom, how did that turn into that? How did that happen? Isn't that a good question? That's what we're going to talk about next. In 312 AD, Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. The Roman emperor reported having a vision of a cross in the sky. I think I, we have a painting up here of him. You can go ahead and throw that up. Um, he reported seeing a vision of a cross, and he said when he saw the cross in the sky, the cross told him, conquer by this sign. Sounds like something Jesus would say, right? Doesn't it sound like Jesus would say, the very thing that killed me by the Roman government, conquer by that? Sounds like Jesus, right? No. Jesus said, love your enemies. If they strike you, turn the other cheek. Probably not Jesus talking to him, right? Um, you know, Jesus was so into military conquest. Jesus wasn't, but Constantine was. And Constantine was a really shrewd leader. See, by this time, 300 years after Jesus, Christianity had exploded in the empire. Millions upon millions of people in the empire were Christians, and a large number of them were the slave population in the Roman Empire. 
And here's what Constantine realized. I could lose control of the empire, we could have a slave revolution, and I could lose everything, or I could use Christianity to my advantage. Now, this is pretty impressive. 300 years after killing the founder of the Christian movement, the empire had effectively become Christian. Why? Because Jesus took Rome with a sword, beheaded the emperor, and made himself the own emperor? No, because he laid down his life, he actually defeated Rome from within. But does Constantine learn from that? No. Constantine tries to subvert that and use Christianity to gather and stabilize and consolidate his power. His role married the Roman government and the church. And we're still feeling the fallout of this thousands of years later. And guess what? Politicians are still trying to wield Christianity to amass power while caring nothing about Jesus or Christ. Or the Christ. There will always be two forces at work in the church pulling in two different directions. One will pull it towards Constantine. One will pull it towards the cross. One voice that shouts, conquer by this sign. And one that whispers, take up your cross and die. One side will say, we have to wield political power to effect change. While another will say, the most important change in human history happened when a powerless man hung on a cross. This is the war at the heart of the American church. And honestly, this is the, the war that's been at the heart of the church since 312 AD. We have begun to believe that money and political influence is more powerful than sacrifice. But Rome itself wasn't conquered by the Christian sword. It fell to the crucified Christ. Now, let's think back to 312 AD. What does it look like to be a Christian? Christians met in homes privately. They met in sewers. They met in cemeteries. They met in places where other people wouldn't go. They sang hymns. They shared meals. They talked about what Jesus was doing. They talked about how to live and love like him. They studied the scriptures. All of a sudden, the emperor says, I'm a Christian now. We are a Christian empire. And he tries to pull these churches out of the secret and into the uh, public square. Constantine worked to move the informal practices of the church into rigid rituals that could be centralized and controlled. The weekly meal became the weekly mass. The feast became a morsel of bread and a sip of wine. The practice became merely a symbol. So, how should we feel when we go and practice communion? Whether it's the ritual, whether it's the practice, how should we go in feeling? Because, honestly, growing up in church, I dreaded communion. Because I knew the preacher was going to stand up there, and I was a teenage boy, and he's like, Have you had a lustful thought? You should not touch that communion unworthily. You're going to hell, my friend. And I'd be like, Oh my gosh, don't touch the communion, because God's going to kill me, you know? Um, the meal is primarily a time of celebration. Yes, Paul makes it clear that the meal can be abused, but notice what he says. Notice how it's abused here in 1 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 17. In the following directives, I have nothing to praise you about. Always a good way to start a letter, right? He's like, I have no good things to say to you. For your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private dinners. As a result, one person remains hungry, another person gets drunk. 
Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not for this. For I received from the Lord which I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new promise in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That was the verse they usually drove home, and I'd be shaking out there in the pew like, Oh no, I'm going to get killed. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. This is why some among you are weak and sick, and another, a, a number of you have fallen asleep. Or, that's a euphemism for died. You're awaiting resurrection. And so, I'd be out there, like, quaking, like, oh man, I better not take communion. I'm going to get blasted. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally... So we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. The churches I grew up in usually preached these fiery sermons of judgment before communion, and they made sure you felt suitably wretched before taking the cup and the wine and the bread. I remember them instructing us not to partake in this if our, there was sin in our life. When has there ever not been sin in my life? You know, like, or I remember them saying, um, if you've habitually done a sin, well, guess what? Every sin I've ever done, I've done more than once in my life. You know what I'm saying? Like, how many of you have ever just lied once? You've ever told a white lie only once? You know, like, it's not how sin works. Um, one pastor used to comment on how the longer we serve Jesus, the less we should be sinning. And if you're still habitually sinning, you shouldn't take communion. Well, first of all, we're all sinners, right? I, none of us have yet arrived at complete Christ-likeness. If we wait until we deserve it, we'll be waiting forever. That's the good news of Jesus, right? It's not like, hey, wait till you deserve it, and then you can come enjoy. It's he doesn't invite the worthy into his kingdom because there wouldn't be anyone. He invites the humble who admit they need him. And second, as I've grown older in Jesus, I've not found that I sin less. I've found that my sin is deeper than I ever imagined. I do think that the longer you serve Jesus, discipleship will round off some rough edges. But when I was a young man, I was all concerned about outward appearances of sin. Like the really obvious stuff. The stuff that I'm like, that's gross. I want to get rid of that. But as I get older, I realize my sin had much deeper roots than I ever imagined. My pride goes a lot deeper than I thought it did. And guess what? A lot of times I do the right thing for the wrong reason. When I was a young man, I wasn't even worried about that. I was just really worried about these really awful sins that I wanted to take care of, right, and get rid of. As I've grown older, the Spirit makes me continually aware of how deep and pervasive my sin is and how truly gracious Jesus has been in forgiving my sins. I now have been given the eyes for the first time to begin to see how selfish I truly am, how deep my pride is, how often I do the right things for the wrong reasons. And for years and years and years, I didn't even notice those sins, but Jesus still loved me and rescued me from them. 
And guess what? As I get older, there's going to be sins right now that I don't even recognize in my life that a few years from now, I'm going to look back and be like, man, you really had this and you didn't even realize it. And yet God showed you grace. Jesus trades the best part of himself for the worst part of me. And so that means you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, if we have made him our Lord and master, if we say, I want to be your student, I want to learn how to live and love like you, we get to go and partake both of the ritual and of the weekly practice and enjoy it and celebrate it and be thankful for it. And look at the context, at what Paul is saying in this passage. What was the offense that the the Corinthians were doing against the Lord's Supper. What does he say? Back at the beginning. You guys keep fighting with each other. You get together to have this meal and all you do is fight. He says there's divisions among you and you just fight about your differences. And so they would get together to celebrate this meal that's supposed to be a picture of Jesus' kingdom where anybody's welcome to come in and share of his abundance and they'd get together and they'd fight over something stupid. And Paul's like, your meetings are not doing good. They're doing the opposite. People come to that and they're like, I don't want any part of this. A divisive church is a church that the culture wants no part of. And then the second thing he noted, he mentions was, they were eating all the food and drinking all the wine so that some people who came in late or later were getting nothing. Now, this is an interesting critique because in Corinth, you had a huge divide between the wealthy and the poor. Guess who was getting off work early and could come to the Lord's Supper early and eat all the food? The rich, because they didn't have to work long hours, right? Guess who was coming in late to the Lord's Supper meal? The poor, because they were working long, back-breaking hours. Who were the people who really needed the free meal at the Lord's Supper? The poor, the people coming in late, and they would show up, and, you know, the pastor, the leader of the house church would be like, come to this meal at my house. It's a picture of the kingdom of God where anyone's welcome, and there's plenty of abundance, and they would show up, and it'd all be taken, and all the rich people would be over there drunk and full. And Paul's like, that's not the picture that this meal is supposed to be presenting. He says, you are eating it unworthily. So it had less to do about their moral behavior and more about their lack of justice and concern for their fellow Christians and for their neighbors. And that brings us to the end of our refresher on communion. That's why we do it. That's why it matters. We'll continue to offer bread and juice on the first Sunday of every month. But we need to remember this is a ritual. It's a reminder, it's a shadow of the practice that Jesus wants us to live out, gathering with other believers and those far from God and throwing a feast because we have found in Jesus the Eden abundance that every human heart longs for. This morning, together, we're going to perform the ritual, but the ritual isn't a replacement for the practice. The ritual is a reminder to live out the practice of throwing inclusive, countercultural meals, announcing the end of death and the reign of Jesus every single week. As our band comes up to play this next song, I invite you to go to the back, pour yourself some juice, take some bread, partake of this ritual that's a reminder. And join me in living a life of celebration because the kingdom of darkness has been defeated and the kingdom of Jesus is rushing in. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for living and dying 
for being resurrected and ascending. Thank you for giving us new life. Thank you for trading the worst part about me, my sin, which, Lord, it always seems I'm becoming more aware of how bad I truly am and how good you truly are for rescuing me. I'm so grateful that you don't leave us where you find us, but you instead, your love actually compels us to become like you. God, we're grateful for your broken body and for your shed blood. We partake of this ritual knowing that you want us to do more than simply a symbolic act. You want us to live a life that shows the abundance of your kingdom and the welcome that anyone can receive when they run towards you. And I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.